Hello and welcome to another episode of Tots. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Ananya Malcha. She's a friend from college. She's been doing some really cool stuff. Had to get her on the show. Ananya, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Absolutely. So start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and some of the work that you've been involved in recently. Well, um, I'm 22 years old and I've lived in the U.S. uh, for um, about eight years now. I moved here when I was 13. My family decided to immigrate to the U.S. and it was really difficult during the first few years. I had never stepped foot on a plane um, and I had never ever left New Delhi, which is where I grew up. I went to super expensive private schools and lived in an amazing neighborhood there. My life was great and I loved it. And when I moved here to uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, it was pretty much the opposite. Hmm. And I found myself being enrolled at Buck Lodge Middle School, which was uh, technically speaking the poorest middle school in Maryland and they call it Title I school. And um, it was really bad. (laughs) I say that it was really bad because there were several challenges that I was faced with. And a lot of them I didn't even realize was a challenge until like a few days after going to school. So I had spoken English all my life in India because of the school I went to. But I realized that my English was not so great when I came to middle school here. And language was definitely a barrier. It was, bar- it was a barrier in a weird way because like 80% of the students that went to my middle school didn't speak English. They were oh, wow. uh, kids who had moved here um, just a couple years ago or a few months ago from Central and South America and they only spoke Spanish. Now I didn't speak a word of Spanish. And so it was just really difficult to communicate, really difficult to make friends. And I got pretty lonely. And there were times when I could talk to um, a few students who did speak some English, only to realize that my English was not so great. And a lot of them would make fun of me. And I just felt very lonely and invisible then. But one thing that I started doing to solve this problem was that I started taking notes during school of the specific words that I was pronouncing incorrectly. So every word that I got incorrect, I just wrote it down in my notebook and I practiced it on my bus ride home. I would just practice saying it because, you know, Um, It just infuriated me to realize that my classmates thought that I was stupid because I couldn't talk like them. So I started watching a lot of American movies, a lot of TV shows, listening to a lot of pop songs, and it took me a while to um, make my English good enough for people not to just understand it, but not even to question that I wasn't from here to begin with. And things got a little better for me when I realized that um, my teachers in middle school didn't think that I was stupid like my classmates and they applied on my behalf to the most prestigious school in Maryland basically and I got accepted. I was like three students um, from 500 eighth graders that went to Buck Lodge to get accepted into the school And this gave me an opportunity to finish the first years of college with high school. 
and things started getting better for me since then. Um, one of the other things wow. that also happened in middle school is that one of my other teachers, she was a science teacher, her name was Margie, and she um, saw that I was really struggling. And I had told her that I had wanted to become a doctor from a young age. And I still wanted to do that. Like I wasn't going to lose hope just because kids were making fun of my English. And I told her that I mm -hmm. wanted to go into medicine. And she shared an after school program with me that was being offered in which students got to learn um, fundamental STEM principles from federal scientists from the NIH, USDA, NASA, and Walter Reed. And I decided to join that program because I was really interested. And honestly, nobody else was offering any help. So I decided to take it. And within one month of that, I found myself starting an internship as a student researcher at Walter Reed Hospital's Mirtha Cancer Center and actually learning about cancer immunotherapy. And it was wow. around that time. That's quite the turnaround. <laughs> yeah. And it was also around that time when um, my dad got the news from India that my favorite uncle was dying from cancer. And he was diagnosed and he was diagnosed with end stage liver cancer. And um, within two months, he was gone. We did our best to try to get to India as soon as possible. But on the day we got there, hours before he had passed away, and that really broke my heart. And I just felt very confused, very powerless. And I just, I just kept wondering if there was anything that I could have done to help. And so when I came back to the U.S. after his death, um, I made up my mind that I wanted to go into cancer medicine. And I got the opportunity to witness uh, two cancer surgeries, especially of the heart. And I was just taken by that. So at age 15, I made up my mind that I was going to pursue cancer surgery. And I'm 22 now, and I'm still on the track for doing that. Wow. That is incredible, too, to, to take such a, you know, a heartbreaking experience like that, like losing your uncle um, and being so close there to translate that into something positive and say, you know what, I don't I don't want other people to have to go through this. I, I'm going to start working on ways to solve that. So exactly. that's incredible. And exactly. at 15, too. I mean, you're 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 still a child at 15. Uh, you know, I'm I'm 24. We still get called uh, kids by by some of the older folks. But to start at 15 and decide like, yeah, this is something that I want to do. I think is uh, is huge. Most people do not have an idea of where they want to go, what they want to work on, what they want to do, and and you just kind of solidified it at a very young age. Yeah, it. I I think that a lot of people played huge roles, important roles in me deciding what I wanted to do in my career. And one of the first people was my grandma, and you know she passed away about three years ago, and I. I always get emotional talking about her, so please excuse my voice. Um, but when I was eight years old, I had a heartfelt conversation with her. And we were basically talking about what is the kind of special power that a human being could actually possess that makes them feel like a god. And I just thought, like, what 
what the hell is she talking about? Like, what could this be? <laughs> and she like paused and let me think about it for a couple minutes. And she said, Ananya, it's a doctor. A doctor is um, a doctor is the kind of person that actually has the skill to make a decision for life and death. They can choose whether they are able to save a person's life or not. Everybody has to die one day. But if you went into the medical profession, then you could have an opportunity to extend people's lives for a certain period of time. And she talked about the power of healing. And, you know, I was eight years old then. I thought about it as much as I could until I got distracted. But then she kept reminding me of it. And I found myself giving her massages because um, she had really painful shoulders. So every night before going to bed, I would just give her a shoulder massage and help her sleep better. And she actually said sincerely that I was helping her pain and realizing that I actually had the power to heal and heal my grandma and do anything related to healing. Like that's when I made up my mind that I wanted to become a doctor. But it wasn't wow. until age 15 that I realized that cancer medicine is the profession that I want to go into. And a surgical oncologist is the kind of doctor that I want to become. I want to do everything I can to prevent the, the suffering and the misery that was experienced by my, my family when my uncle passed away from being experienced by other people. Like one of the things that's important to mention here is that nobody really knows what happens when somebody dies. Like we have theories about it and like people think, you know, you go to heaven or hell or you get reincarnated, but nobody really knows because we get no scientific right. evidence back from people who die. But mm -hmm. one thing is for certain, which is that when somebody important dies when somebody who is really loved and who really loves the people around them dies then when they go they actually leave a giant hole a giant gap in the lives of the people that really really loved them and that they mattered to and i just want to do everything i can in my career to not just treat but also to prevent cancer for an entire family because clearly a whole family gets cancer, not just one person, because it's really right. a team effort to help a patient recover. And when a patient dies, you know, their their family is, is going to be devastated. And as a doctor, yeah. I want to have the opportunity to prevent that pain and suffering from occurring. Yeah, that's awesome. You mentioned, too, uh, something I want to touch on, which was you know, when, when somebody really important dies, it's, it, we can't really pinpoint it exactly, but they do leave a giant hole. Um, and I think what's interesting is talking about like scientific research, they can see when people lose people. Um, I, I don't think they've ever figured out how to actually track that transference, but we can see that that emotional pain becomes physical that um, when people are going through yes, depression because of loss and things like that, their brain activity is different. Different areas of their body are are different temperatures than they are at stasis, right? So it's, yes. it's such a weird concept because we don't know what happens after death, but what we can see is the effect that it has on people. 
And it's it's a non it's a non-physical thing, right? It happens emotionally and then it becomes physical and and certainly there has to be something behind that that, that we're just not at that level yet to understand, you but are, it's to me it's such a crazy thing. You are completely correct here, Ben, because it's scientifically proven that when an individual suffers a great loss, then emotional pain can most definitely transfer into physical pain. So it turns out that, you know, as you already know, the nervous system, which consists of your brain and spinal cord, that is very complicated. And the human brain is the most complicated three pounds of matter in the entire universe. Our (laughs) brains have not been able to use itself to figure out what the human brain actually can do and the extent of what it can do. But there is um, research that has been done to actually see a connection between the brain and pain in your heart. So there's a nerve. It's called the vagus nerve. Yep. And it starts right here in your head and it goes through your face and actually travels down uh, to your stomach, to your abdomen, but it goes through your heart. So it's very, very important for bodily functions. And it is shown in research that whenever you um, suffer trauma, like emotional trauma of any kind, including the death of a loved one, then your heart function is actually affected by it negatively. And there is definitely a connection, a correlation between the brain experiencing trauma and the heart experiencing heartbreak, like literally heartbreak. It's, it's so nuts too. And, um, I, I love the, uh, you know, it's the most complicated three pounds of matter in the universe. And, uh, (laughs) the, the other really funny thing I love about that is, uh, I see this all the time on like Twitter, Instagram, people are like the brain named itself. (laughs) The brain named itself. The brain discovered itself. It named itself. I, I don't know anything else that speaks to that. Um, but the, the other thing that I've seen too, is like, I don't know the scientific terminology or the medical terminology for it, but um, I've seen a couple of times like somebody died of like heartbreak. And I was like, that can't possibly be true. And then you look into the story and it's like, obviously there's comorbidities. The person's probably not in good shape already. They're usually older, but you see sometimes after the death, especially of like a spouse or a loved one, you have a lot of these older people that literally will die of a heartbreak because it stops the function of their heart as effectively. And if you already have other things going on, it can kill you. And it's it's just insane to me to think that something non-physical becomes emotional through through different energies or whatever the heck it is that we don't know yet, right? And then it becomes this physical thing that can actually harm you. So the work that you're doing and the work that other people are doing to try and lessen some of the suffering in something that affects millions and millions of people a year, all of us, right, is is huge. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Um, I have spent a lot of time at Walter Reed Hospital uh, since I was 15. And um, when I first got there, um, it was it was difficult for me. I was accepted into the lung cancer and the skin cancer tumor board. And a tumor board is a meeting in which a group of doctors, specifically cancer physicians from many, many disciplines such as um, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, immunotherapy, 
um, dermatology, radiology, uh, and so on. They come together and discuss very difficult cases that they are currently um, that are that they are currently taking care of. And when they used to present them and talk about treatment plans and how to go about actually helping out a patient, I just used to be completely lost. And I realized that there was a way to turn this disadvantage into an advantage. And I realized that I could do that if I asked uh, some of my mentors at Walter Reed for help. So I told them that I was feeling pretty much lost in tumor boards. And as they started sponsoring extra sessions after clinic to help me understand the fundamentals of cancer medicine and immunotherapy, which, which is what our, our melanoma immunotherapy unit specializes in, then I realized that, you know, if, if I, as a student, a 10th grade student, is having so much difficulty understanding these cancer concepts, and I'm a science student, like, I should, I should be able to get some of this, right? Smart as hell. Uh, well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I should be able to get some of this at least. But if I'm experiencing this, then what about the cancer patients and their caregivers who have just been told that they're that they have cancer and they're just afraid that they're probably gonna die from it? Like, how much difficulty would they be having understanding what their doctor is telling them? And from that we came up with a solution that involved a seminar series called the Rethinking the Science of Cancer, which involved um, uh, segments of fundamental cancer principles. And then we moved on into the many advances for melanoma immunotherapy that we're noticing in our patient, in our patients. But the most, the, the, the segment of the presentations that I admired the most was the highlight from the patients and caregivers when they agreed to present their testimonies. These were patients that we have that were willing to share their story and, and their journey, which was just just hopeful and inspiring and you know full of uh, just fear and <laughs> distress, but it, it gave other patients hope. And in that process, we started to realize that we could actually scale this up. And we started to take the Rethinking the Science of Cancer seminar series beyond Walter Reed. And we got invited by Johns Hopkins University, Stanford University, University of Maryland, and the United States Joint Pathology Center, the American Society for Quality. And all these institutes invited us to actually shared the the new kind of seminar series that our team had come up with. And I realized that I was having, um, I was I was understanding more and more of the content that was being presented in tumor board. And our patients were also benefiting from these seminar series quite a bit because it wasn't it wasn't like we were dumbing down content. It wasn't that. But we were making complex scientific concepts uh, easy to understand for normal people, such as a student right. like myself or a new patient and their caregiver, and also um, some of the new staff members that we had joining us in clinic. And that was a, that was a big achievement for our team because we realized that we could actually help a lot of people. And I believe that we did yeah. end up doing 
because patient education is very, very important when it comes to something as dynamic and as complicated as cancer medicine, because a patient is going to do much, much better if they are able to realize that they have a they have the ability to work with a physician as an equal and actually collaborate in coming up with a treatment plan compared to just being told what to do and being super afraid and sure. being confused. Yeah, I mean, that's huge because um, if you don't understand what's happening because you can't understand the terminology or the concepts or out of the realm of what you understand, you're not going to... That process is going to be like 10 times harder versus you exactly. having some level of understanding of what's going on, how things are affecting you. And then also, like you were talking about, that communication back to your physicians is like being able to communicate more effectively what you're feeling and, and how you think it's going and what you're worried about helps them to improve things. And, and most of the cancer patients that I've known are, are people who have beaten cancer or, you know, passed from cancer. The number one thing that they always say is cancer is so complex. Like they didn't understand it. Nobody explained it well to them. The treatment wasn't explained. You ask some questions are like, I, I don't really know. It's it's chemotherapy, but I don't know what kind it is. I don't know what the specific drugs yeah. are. So I think there's so much confusion around the treatment and what the disease actually is that if you're able to break it down, doing things that like you're doing with your work, I think it makes it better for everybody involved. So that's awesome. I I agree with what you said completely. You know, we we have a joke in clinic, which is that I feel like every one of our patients just get an honorary um, medical degree just by <laughs> just by um, learning about their disease. And when I was yeah. uh, just starting out at Walter Reed when I was 15, I was told that cancer is one of the best ways to learn about medicine. And the reason for that is because you can get cancer in pretty much any part of your body. So this little hole that that is um, on your eye, uh, your tear duct, which is where your tears come from, you can even get cancer there, as crazy as that sounds. And, you wow. know, the eye is such a small organ, but you can get so many different kinds of cancers in the eye, and they're all different from each other, and they all have their own specific things that you have to know about, and they're all very, very complicated. So cancer is definitely a complex field, and what makes it even more complex is that there are so many new treatments that keep coming out um, that a lot of them, you know, are still in the process of getting FDA approved and physicians just have a hard time overall keeping, uh, keeping up with the new treatments. And when they themselves are having a hard time keeping up with all the new stuff that is being discovered and all the different kinds of cancers, then it becomes difficult for their patients to keep up as well. And when a physician is having a hard time themselves, then they many times will not be able to help their patients understand the fundamentals of their disease and the treatments that they are getting. Right. Yeah, I mean, how could they, right? They're swamped. Uh, cancer is something like we were talking about. It affects so many people, so many millions of people get it or have it that, you know, you, you don't necessarily have time to sit there and explain everything out, which is probably why 
that became such an issue. So having a way to better communicate that it's helping the physicians, it's helping the patients, it's helping the families. So it's, that's a great solution. I exactly. And I really, really liked this idea from the very beginning because I found, I found that I was interested in something kind of weird. And I realized that I could become good at it if I practiced hard enough. And that was explaining very difficult scientific concepts to normal people. And I enjoyed doing that very, very much. And I really, really see myself um, in my future uh, career as a cancer physician being both a doctor and also an educator. I realize that I will not be spending most of my time in the OR doing uh, cancer surgeries. I will actually be spending a lot of my time just talking to patients about what is about to happen or helping them recover after the surgery or just being on my computer putting in notes of what just happened because that's also a big part of the physician's job job description. But the education part is absolutely vital and you could have a much better chance at saving a patient's life when they are completely on board and when they are an equal decision maker compared to just when they are blindly following what what you tell them to do and being lost in the process. Yeah, that's huge. That's awesome. We talked, um, geez, I think it was like five months ago now, uh, <laughs> about some of the work uh, that you were involved in around... Um, I'm probably uh, I'm probably over exaggerating it, but something around a cancer vaccine or or a way yeah. to to raise the immune yeah. system to get to a certain level that it's it's just constantly killing off cancer cells. So talk to me a little bit about that. Dumb it down for me though, because yeah. I you know I'm just a <laughs> podcast host. There's there's no dumbing down that's needed, Ben. If somebody like me can understand it, then anybody can. And as you already know, English is not even my first language. And believe it or not, I'm kind of a slow learner. Like people need to repeat things at least three or four times for me to really understand. So <laughs> we're kind of on the same level here. So there's no dumbing down that would be needed. But yes, All right. um, I'm so glad that you remembered that because it is a project that our team is working on. So the way it works is that the human nervous system is super complicated. As we were just talking about a few minutes ago, the human brain is the most complex three pounds of matter in the universe that we know of so far. And the brain and the spinal cord make up the central nervous system. And what's so interesting about the central nervous system is that it is actually responsible for protecting you from any external threats that could be harmful to your physical being, to your to your body. And these could include anything from, you know, don't put your hand on a hot stove or don't go to a COVID party <laughs> to catch COVID or don't go <laughs> or, or don't drive um, or, or don't drive. Um, clockwise on the outer loop of the beltway, which only goes counterclockwise because you're going to get in an accident. (laughs) And our central nervous system is responsible for protecting us from everything from the outside that could potentially be harmful. But it turns out that our body is actually just as complex inside as it is outside and protecting us. 
So our body has about 100 trillion cells. And you could ask, well, what the hell is responsible for, you know, keeping those 100 trillion cells in check? And it turns out that there's something just as comparably complex as the central nervous inside our body, and that is the immune system. And the immune system does exactly what the central nervous system does just for inside the cells, uh, just for the cells inside our body. So it is responsible for accurate true states detection of everything that's inside that could hurt us, like a virus or a bacteria or cancer cells. So it does accurate true states detection of any threats that are around. And it is responsible for making an error correcting motion to just make sure that it gets rid of anything that could be harmful inside. So our immune system is naturally responsible for doing that. Now, we are aware from research that in normal human beings like you and I, who have not been diagnosed as cancer patients, that out of 100 trillion cells in our body, there are at least five or 10 of them every day that decide to go crazy and, you know, decide that they're going to set up their own country inside of you, basically turn into a cancer tumor. And we call those cells precancerous. So these are cells that are bound to become cancer tumors if you just let them go. But our immune system is responsible for catching them early and then getting rid of it. And that's why you and I, Ben, are not currently clinically cancer patients. And we could actually use that explanation to go further and say that the people who currently are cancer patients and have been diagnosed as clinically having cancer, then their immune system might not be functioning as well as normal people's. Why? Because their immune system could not recognize that threat and just get rid of it um, as other people's immune system could. So what if we could actually come up with some system that could detect a lowering of intelligence inside our immune system cells that would keep them from doing accurate true states detection for uh, against cancer cells and figuring out a way to get rid of them and just give them a sort of a intelligence boost, like an intelligence boost for the immune system. Now you could ask Ananya, this all sounds crazy. Now what could be this intelligence boost for this for the immune system cells who are not doing so good? Well, one way to go about this would be that there is Lots of immuno, there are lots of immunotherapies available currently, and their main goal is to completely ignore cancer cells. But they focus on actually upregulating the intelligence of immune system cells so that they can do their job better. And in cancers like melanoma, which is the cancer of melanocytes, the cells that give you the color of your skin, the pigment in your skin. Um, in cancers like melanoma, um, cancer immunotherapy, specifically immune checkpoint inhibitors, have shown huge advancements. And we, in our clinic, have lots of patients who are currently disease-free and have been receiving cancer immunotherapy, immune checkpoint inhibitors, for five years and more. So wow. what if we could uh, figure out a way to detect whenever a person's immune system intelligence was not up to par and then give it, give them like a little um, immunotherapy 
um, uh, nasal spray of some sort or like a vaccine of some sort that would just help them upregulate the intelligence of their immune system and keep cancer from actually taking place. Keep those five or 10 different cells that decide to go crazy in your body, just keep them in check and prevent cancer altogether. That would be insane. That would that would solve a lot of problems. <laughs> it would so solve a lot of how, problems. How would you practically test for these things? Because as you were saying, you know, five or ten of these precancerous cells that that want to set up little little countries in the body. I'm sure I've got some some little rogues in there. Um, if you were able to do this, I'm assuming you could do some sort of blood test, but wouldn't wouldn't you have to do this like on a daily basis to truly protect yourself or? That's a great question. I personally have not thought through the logistics of whether it's going to be on a daily basis or a monthly basis or a yearly basis. Um, at the same time, it is important to note that um, many cancers, especially malignant cancers, um, they grow very fast and they spread very fast and they're very different from cancer that are slow growing. For example, you could have a tumor growing inside you for 10 years and have no idea about it. And we have had patients who um, just have had uh, a growth and it was on their skin and it just looked like a mole and it never hurt them or anything. And their wife noticed it and now they were forced to come to clinic because of their wife, but they themselves would have never noticed it and just and just, and just just gone about their life with it. Right. So, so I think that that question is a little difficult to answer, but that doesn't mean that we can't answer it. And I think that just because people uh, are asking that question means that we're actually moving in the right direction. The problem with the current uh, cancer model in the U.S. is that we are amidst a 60 or 70 year old war on cancer that we are clearly losing. And even though we have a few advancements here and there in the treatment of cancer, nobody uh, is actually talking about preventing cancer as a whole instead of just treating it. And there's so many different sure. cancers and that's why it just gets so complicated. But what about asking the question of, so how would we actually go about preventing cancer from occurring altogether? And that's where our team came up with this shared uh, theory of, okay, if this is where cancer cells are originating, and if this is where immune system cells are actually losing their intelligence, then what could we do to keep that from happening in the first place? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it would make sense, right? If if the cancer is creating tumors and spreading and multiplying because of a drop in that intelligence, if you're able to detect that on a you know regular basis, and then able to pick up like, okay, well, we've had a drop and then increase that, that, that would solve your problem. I think from my perspective, like doing something like that, I think a lot of people would be on board with, uh, let me ask you though. So, you know, right now we've got COVID, we've got a, a lot of vaccine hesitancy going on, especially here in the States. Um, part of the reason why I think people might be a little hesitant with, uh, the vaccine recently 
is because it seems like there's a lot of information out there, but it's really like spread out. You've got the WHO saying different things. You've got the CDC saying different things. Fauci's like wrong, like five times a week now, I think that counters up to. And and you've got everybody saying different things at the same time. Do you think doing something kind of like we were talking with uh, about cancer and talking to cancer patients, uh, let's say we do develop something like a cancer vaccine. What kind of system could we put in place to help to explain to people what's currently going on, how we're going to treat it, and then what's in the vaccine, why they should get it, things like that? How could we set up some system to avoid some of that hesitancy? I think you're asking a great question, and it is a question that is extremely important, not just in cancer, but in the issue, the biggest issue that uh, the world is facing today, including Americans. I think that one of the things that has not worked out for COVID is the mistrust that the American public has come to develop in American scientists. And scientists have not made it easy and be transparent to the American public in helping them understand the science behind what's really going on and helping them see the benefits of why they should do it compared to just telling them what to do. I think this all really goes back to the root of education and the importance of education on the smallest level, like literally between a doctor and a patient or between a researcher and a normal person like you and I. And if you can't make a connection that really, really makes sense, uh, scientific sense specifically, then you won't be able to get the support of people because scientists are untrustworthy to begin with because you know a lot of the work that they do is secretive and it seems secretive because normal people can't really understand what the hell they're working on and they don't make it any easier on us either but if we could develop some sort of a group of scientists that have no problem being transparent number one and helping the public understand, okay, we're using your taxpayer dollars, and this is exactly what they're going into, and this is how it's going to help you. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're still in a free country. It's still a choice. If you want to prevent cancer for yourself, this is something that is available that you could do. Uh, Just like if you want to technically prevent COVID for yourself, even though we know, you know, you can still get COVID with a lot of the vaccines that are still out there. But it's still a choice. We still live in a free country. I think the best that can be done is on the part of scientists in terms of transparency and helping Mm -hmm. the public understand what is that they have discovered, what does it mean, and what are the implications of it for a normal person. And help sure. the person, educate the person enough in helping them make a good choice for themselves. People are not stupid and they're not trying to be stupid. And everybody who's saying something that you don't agree with, they probably have thought about it as much as you have thought about your opinions, you know. So the ability to just help people understand and give them the tools that they would need to make the best decision for themselves is is the best way to go. And I personally can't think of anything better than that because at the end of the day, we do live in a free country, do live in a democracy, and we can't force people 
to do something, we can only inspire them to make the best decision for themselves. Wow. I'd, I'd like to clip that and just have that be the the entire show. Because, I mean, that that's such a perfect <laughs> summary of, I think, the way that we should be thinking about um, treatments in terms of medicine. And I feel like we've, uh, Ananya, I feel like we've gone so far away from that. Like right now, and, and I think you, you said so many things I want to touch on, but one of the big things is this mistrust of uh, scientists. And, and like you said, they have not made it easy, right? Like we have yeah. constantly, we see the politicization of different scientists on either side. We see people getting wrapped up in, well, you know, even just the politics of different hospitals or different research centers or universities. It's like, yeah, like, you know, if you sponsor my study and things like that, I'll sponsor yours. Yeah. Like they're all making money. <laughs> they're, they're all making money. And so it's, it's so hard, I think, uh, right now. And, and I'm vaccinated. I've, I've talked about the vaccine a couple of times on, on the show. Um, I try and stay out of the COVID stuff, but you know, it's, that's, uh, that's all that's happening. So, I'm vaccinated. Um, I ended up getting COVID like, I would say like a month and a half, two months after getting vaccinated. Wow. What'd you say? Uh, I said, have you fully recovered or are you still experiencing I have. symptoms? Because there's this lucky. long COVID in which many of the symptoms still stay behind, even like two or three after uh, two or three weeks after um, a person has tested negative for COVID when they have previously had it, and a lot of people are are still suffering from long COVID, and it's 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 a problem that we don't talk about enough. So I'm just asking, have I you have recovered? heard of that? <laughs> yeah, no, I I'm lucky. I've I fully recovered, thank God. Um, so did everybody around me. But it was such a an interesting moment um, because you know I I'm somebody that naturally I'm curious. So before getting the vaccine, I did a lot of research. Um, I looked at all sides of what are people saying about it. Uh, okay, what are the experts saying? But the thing that I kept running into, and I think we're running into a lot right now, is this kind of concept that that you said, where it's very much like in general in the scientific community and i think with covid it's like just exploded it's like i know better than you right this is my shit so do what i say to do you're an idiot if you don't and if you disagree with me then whatever and then that that just kind of breeds that fear of like well, why why are you trying to force me to get it and then you know we have mandate scares exactly. and things like that if we were to approach COVID. And if we had done this from the start, from a perspective of we're going to do the best that we can, we're going to try and keep information um, kind of centralized and we're going to all input. But as new information comes in, we're going to verify it and then blah, 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 instead of just everyone throwing everything out constantly. Right. Like. I feel like we'd be in much a better in a much better spot. And like, I'm not blaming anybody, any politician or scientist for anything, but I feel like we probably would have saved you know, possibly millions of lives from COVID if we were able to actually understand that we need to be open and honest about all of the information. We need to vet the information. But at the end of the day, people still need to be able to have that choice, right? Like forcing people to do something medically in history 
has never been good. There's, the, I, I yeah. would challenge somebody to find me an example of where everyone's forced to do it despite not wanting to do it. And it's, it's totally worked out. And again, I'm vaccinated. I believe in the vaccine. I encourage other people to get it if it's right for them. But I feel like with COVID, we just went full like God complex of scientists and doctors. And, you know, there's a lot of politicization and it just it just screwed everything up. It got very messy. I agree with you completely. When this first started, you know, uh, basically um, almost two years ago now, um, it was it was really difficult for normal people. And even though um, I work with a lot of scientists and I um, also am a scientist myself, even our team had a lot of difficulty making sense of what was being said. And it wasn't until months after, or I think almost a year after um, May of 2020, that the American public actually found out that on the first few days, we were actually lied to when we were told that we didn't need to wear masks. And the reason for that is because the doctors and the scientists wanted to save the N95 masks that should have been in the stockpile um, that weren't there in the first mm -hmm. place. So they just wanted to save anything that was left over for themselves. And they just kept that as a secret from the American gov from the American public. And they just lied about it. Like, you don't need to wear a mask. And that became extremely pro problematic because people still could have made masks at their home. Like people yes. like my grandma or my aunt or my mom, they could have just taken freaking old t-shirts and made masks from that if right. not or like handkerchiefs. I know like 25 different people who, who started like little side hustles making masks out of t-shirts and extra fabric, not exactly. at all affecting the supply chain. Exactly. Exactly. And even that could have been so useful because even though we know that uh, cloth masks or surgical masks do not spread, do not stop the spread of the virus, specifically speaking, they don't keep you from catching COVID because the, the aerosols that contain the COVID virus, they can still travel through those masks. Uh, and the only right. mask they can't travel through is N95. But it could have still worked if everybody wore those masks that were just, you know, DIY, just homemade. And the reason for that is because if everybody was wearing those, then those aerosols would have never left um, the person who was infected in the first place and they couldn't have spread it. So it would have helped in keeping it from spread versus um, preventing people from catching it. it. It would have still worked. That's that is such an important point. Another one that um, that was so frustrating was it, it felt like at various points, different organizations and the White Houses, we've you know, we've had two different administrations during COVID now. It felt like all of them uh, and, and both White House admins decided at different points to share select information with the public and then at other times to mislead them. So at one point, they told the truth, and I was like, why would you say that? So understanding how America functions and how the people here think about their freedoms and things like that, one of the most frustrating things that that I ever heard, and I think it came out of, uh, it might have been Fauci during the Trump administration, but it, if you're listening and I get this wrong, you can fact check me. Um, 
somebody within within an administration or one of one of these uh I, I think it was Fauci comes out and says, We're wearing the masks for other people, not for ourselves. The problem with saying something like that, despite maybe at the time the research pointing to that is how it works, is that Americans are individualistic and we are freedom focused, but that also comes with some level of self-preservation and integrity. If you had told people the masks protect your family members and it also protects you in the long run, it protects everybody. You're not forced to wear it, but we think it's a good idea. Here's how you make them at home. People should probably have masks. If they had done that correctly, I think a lot more people would have worn the masks. You see all these these exactly. crazy people trying to get into stores, exactly. and then and then they're fighting the masks. As charity, it's it's just like <laughs> exactly because you told people that it's not actually going to help them. It's only for other people, right? It's like that that whole concept doesn't make any sense. So I think, yeah. I mean, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm not in a position where I'm making these decisions, and and who knows? I probably would have done just as poorly. But I think a lot of the distrust of the scientific community, especially during COVID, has come about because we're hearing one thing and then studies come out a different way. The information is all disjointed and and it uh, is inconsistent in terms of it contradicting itself. And then it's like, okay, and we have one solution. That's this vaccine. Everyone has to get it. We're trying to mandate it. Like, I... I mean, you're you're in the medical field. I'm not. But as far as I'm aware, usually we don't find a single solution to a medical right. issue that works for every single person and then absolutely. mandate that. I've never heard of that. Yep, that's absolutely true. Some people are always going to so, be extempt. And um, in something as complicated as COVID has become because of all the variants that we have found out uh, about and something even more complex, such as cancer, you know, even though everybody in our clinic is technically speaking a melanoma patient, then you could say, well, yeah, all of their cancer is the same. Well, definitely not. Uh, For sure not. Every person is different in their functionality, in their homeostasis, in their allostasis. Everything is different about two individuals. And even though they might have the same cancer type in terms of the same type of cell has cancer growing, it's never ever going to be in the same spot of their body. And it's never ever going to behave the same way, meaning that it's not always going to break away and metastasize into other parts of the body the exact same way that it did for another person. So with that, we can, you know, just simply conclude that no two people are the same. So I completely agree with you. And and I think that you're totally right when you say that there's no one mandate that could work for every single person because everybody's different in their physiology and how they function. Exactly. And, and I like that you tied it back to the cancer because uh, I think with COVID, we get so wrapped up in well, COVID's different. COVID is very different and it is highly complex, but a lot of what we've discovered over the past, you know, hundred years in, in the medical field, especially in this country is different and is complex until it's not. And when you put the same uh, reaction that we've kind of had 
to COVID, take out, you know, it's spreading and, and virology and all of that. But you say, okay, two people have this, this virus or this disease, whatever it may be. We typically don't, we don't say we're going to treat it the same way. If two people had the same cancer and they went into a hospital to get treatment, there's no way in hell that they would receive the same treatment because every single person is different. So I think if the medical community is is at the point they are, which I think they are, where they're kind of trying to make amends, win back the trust of the American people, especially, I think it's time to lay everything out on the table and say, look, like there are multiple ways that we can fix this problem. There's multiple things we can do. Here are the suggestions, but like it needs to be more of a conversation. I agree with that completely. It needs to be an equal conversation not where scientists compared to where scientists just look down on normal people. I know my shit and you don't. And I get paid for this and you don't. So you don't have any authority in this matter and I do. I'm the expert and you're not. All of those things cannot apply to a conversation that absolutely needs to happen. And like I said, you know, I can't emphasize this enough that it has to start at the smallest level. It has to literally start between individuals. So, you know, I want to exemplify what I'm talking about in my upcoming medical career, in which, as I already said, I don't just want to become a cancer surgeon. I want to become a really, really good educator. And technically speaking, I would still be a science educator because I would still be in the business of explaining very, very difficult science concepts, specifically having to do with cancer and cancer medicine and surgery and how other treatments could work alongside surgery to patients who are just normal people who are very afraid and just probably can't make sense of a lot of the things that they're hearing. So it has to start at a small level. And I really, really hope to set a good example of that in my upcoming medical career. Absolutely. Well, hey, I think conversations like this, uh, you know, kind of give people perspective of how the next generation of scientists and medical professionals are thinking about what they want to do and and the things that they want to change. And we've certainly had many, many good examples. Um, you know, I obviously without medicine and these scientists, even the ones that I think are kind of pricks and they're, and they're a little rude to the average people. (laughs) Yes. They, these, these are people who are doing important research most of the time and they are saving people's lives. So, um, you know, it, it's inspiring to me and I think other people that don't have, the perspective that maybe somebody like yourself would have being involved in the medical community to see people like yourself, very intelligent and and obviously going on to uh, an incredible career to say, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I want people to understand what I'm saying and what I'm doing and why we're doing things because that's the best way to be. So that's, that's really inspiring. Thank you so much. I, just never ever want anybody to experience the feeling that I experienced when my family was told that my uncle was dying of cancer and that there was nothing that we could do about it. Or the feeling that I experienced of being extremely confused and lost just sitting in a tumor board conversation. I don't think that's right. And I sincerely believe that even if I could save one patient's life from cancer that I would be preventing 
a, a huge amount of suffering and misery for their whole family. And I believe that that would be a great personal contribution that I could make on my end. And with that, you know, it would it would be a life worth living. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, you know, I uh, certainly your grandmother and your uncle's influence uh, drives you. And, um, you know, we see people in a lot of different professions on this show. I've had, you know, people from astronauts to professors to medical professionals at anyone you can think of. And, um, you know, I guess kind of a, a summation of my experience meeting people who do literally all different kinds of things is that the people who seem to enjoy their work the most not only are doing the best job, but are also, like you said, they make their life worth living and other people's around them because they've had some sort of personal connection to it. So like I do sales. It's not it's not really a, uh, a personal connection to sales other than, you know, I like <laughs> to sell. But um, the marketing and, and the podcasting for me. I have a personal connection to that because I've always loved talking to people, getting to know them and understanding what they're about. So um, I just think you're very well set up for how, you know, you've kind of structured your life into going into this field. Um, and again, it's it's really, really good to see. It's such a relief to see people who are like, I want to go into this field and I want to make sure people understand things versus, you know, the the whole God complex. Because like you said at the beginning, like your conversation with your grandma, it, it can make you feel like a God. You're you're saving people's lives. How could you not feel like a God? But right. turning that around and saying, you know, I, I do get this amazing feeling, but I want to make sure that that people are on the same page as me, uh, I think is awesome. And if you stick to that, I mean, wow look out. You're, you're going to go places. Thank you so much for saying that, Ben. I just want to mention as the last thing I'm going to say, which is that I, I'm not exactly sure how I got to where I am today, but I definitely can say that none of the things that I have done so far and that I hope to accomplish in the future that I have done by myself. This is not anything natural. I am the only scientist in my family. My mom stays at home. My dad works in a casino. No doctors in my family, no scientists. And it's just been because of the amazing teachers that I've had. I've had some wonderful mentors who were willing to guide me when I was lost and I was afraid. And kind of stupid like in middle school just starting out and <laughs> I will be forever grateful to them to helping me where I am today there have they have been a huge inspiration in my life and I hope that when I get to um, a point in my life where I can be like them that I could also help some young people that that just like the ones that were willing to help me when when I was just starting out so I am very, very grateful to everybody that's helped me get to where I am. That's awesome. That's great. Well, hey, Ananya, this has been uh, a great conversation. I thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll definitely make sure that we have you on as uh, again as you pursue your medical career. I'm expecting some very big things out of you, so we will make sure that we have you back on. And uh, if you're listening to this right now, thank you for listening. Uh, you allow me to do what I love to do which is have really cool people like Ananya on to talk about their experience. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you guys. 
But yeah, Ananya, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. Absolutely. Ananya, if people want to follow what you are doing in the medical world as you uh, start your career or some of the projects that you've been working on, where's the best place they can do that? They can Google uh, BOS Workshops with an S at the end, dot org. So BOSworkshops.org, they can Google that. Um, and if they would like to find a little bit more about the cancer work that our team has been doing, including the many seminars that we sponsor, uh, they can just Google my name, Ananya Malcha, and go to the YouTube channel. And we have several videos on there of past seminars that we have done that describe the fundamentals in cancer medicine and also advances in immunotherapy. And most importantly, the best part, which is patient and caregiver testimonies, which I personally love. All right. That's great. I will make sure those are included in the show notes. So if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, you can check that out below so you don't have to look that up. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, if you want to check out more of our episodes and more fantastic guests like Ananya, you can check out our website, totspodcast.com. Uh, if you want to listen to it on an app or mobile device, easiest way to do that, just like I said earlier, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, search our name up. That will pop up right there. All of this will also be linked in the show notes. Follow us on social media. Uh, our biggest one right now is Instagram. That's where we're going to share uh, our really cool guests that are coming on. That's where you'll get some exclusive uh, some exclusive information about our guests, something that uh, we won't talk about during the show. Uh, we're also going to be doing some giveaways this season, so make sure you follow us there. That's at TotsCast. And uh, again, thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.